Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel here on New Books Network. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Portwood Stacer about her book, The Book Proposal Book, A Guide for Scholarly Authors. Welcome to the show, Laura. Thank you so much for having me, Christina. I am really glad that you are here and that we get to talk about what book proposals are and really help listeners uh, understand more about that important subject. Before we get started, I wonder if you would tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Yeah. So I am um, self-employed as uh, I was a developmental editor for several years and I've moved more into the consulting space, helping people with book proposals. Um, So I have a business, it's called Manuscript Works. Um, But before that, I was in academia and I got my PhD in communication. And then I wrote a book based on my dissertation and uh, published that book and, uh, you know, taught for a few years before kind of transitioning away into what I really love to do, which is to help other people kind of navigate this journey that, I kind of fumbled through myself um, and saw really an opportunity to help people um, figure it out with a bit more confidence than I had at the time. I love that you uh, chose that path. There are so many people who need exactly what you do. Did you know where you wanted to end up after graduation or was it just sort of one thing led to another? Um, That's a great question. No, I mean, I would say that Uh, You know, the idea of academic editing and publishing was always intriguing to me, but I was definitely just one of those people who was kind of, you know, thought the tenure track was the way to go. Um, And then, you know, I, as I was teaching for a few years after graduation, I had a visiting assistant professorship. And while I was in that position, one of my colleagues invited me to, um, be an associate editor on the journal Feminist Media Studies. And uh, as part of that post, I was responsible for editing, co-editing this one section of the journal. And we would, you know, solicit um, articles, short commentary pieces, and work with the authors to get them ready for publication. And I just really enjoyed that part of the job, kind of more than anything else I was doing, Um, more than my own research and more than, um, you know, teaching, which I liked well enough. But Um, And so I just realized, well, what if I could do this all the time um, and really just have that strong connection with authors, helping them feel good about their work and understand what they needed to do to it to make it um, connect with the readers that they wanted to connect with. So that's that's where I sort of saw my opening as becoming a full time editor. So you're field of study was communications, and then you had this wonderful opportunity to do this editing on this journal. Did you take any courses in publishing or in developmental editing, or was it all on the job training? That is a great question. Um, There really, it it was mostly on the job training. You know, I didn't have, before I took the journal post, um, and I think this is common to people in academia who have these kinds of positions. It's not like there was some kind of qualifying um, exam to do that or any kind of training. It was kind of you jump in and you do the job and you find out whether you're good at it or not. Um, But then when I decided to strike out on my own, you know, I did, I took one publishing course 
um, in kind of a professional studies program that kind of showed me a little bit about the lay of the land. But then kind of the rest was learning as I went, um, and of course, making some mistakes, but also just kind of um, learning from my clients and, you know, kind of seeing what worked for them and then, you know, being able to iterate that again and again. Um, and then, you know, just kind of paying attention. I'm, I was, you know, an ethnographer in my previous academic life. My first book was an ethnography. So I think I just had that kind of skill of just paying attention to the world around me, in this case, the publishing world, and just seeing how things work there and also trying to kind of decode how things work there um, because it's so insidery in some ways. Um, so just kind of as an outsider to it, figuring out, okay, what would an author need to know in order to break in over here? So, um, yeah, it was just kind of a long process of almost like ethnographic research, um, of learning how to edit and, and what, and how to help authors. Yeah. So that leads to my next question, which is what led you to write this book? Yeah. So, you know, as I said, I worked one-on-one -on -one with clients um, for the most part for the first few years I was running my business and I found myself giving the same advice over and over again, very understandably, um, because no one had really formally taught academic writers what it takes to get published. It's kind of, it seems like the sort of like mystical thing that like people get lucky and it happens to them. Um, or they like have just the right connections that help them get a book deal. Um, but you know, that's not necessarily the case. There are, you know, steps you have to take. And so by me kind of spelling out those steps for people again and again, I started to see like, okay, there, there could be a more formalized way of conveying this information so more people have access to it. Um, so actually, the first thing I did was develop an online course um, that is it's called my Book Proposal Accelerator. And so I created a curriculum for that course because, you know, I had this experience as a teacher um, and, you know, plan to just kind of like take a group of scholars through it and help them develop book proposals that they were working on. But then, um, you know, as I was doing that, I was approached by an editor at a, a university press, um, you know, who had seen me kind of writing on the internet and giving advice um, and said, you know, you have a good voice for this. Have you thought about writing a book? And I said, yes, I have thought about writing a book, but I you know, wasn't sure exactly what I would write a book about. Um, but I have this whole curriculum I've just written for this online course and you know, the editor was really encouraging and said, you know, there is a market for this kind of book. Um, so I think you should go with that. So that's kind of where the project uh, took shape as a, as a book proposal first and then as a manuscript. And is that the editor and press you ultimately went with? You talk in the book about yeah. um, developing an idea may start in one place and take you to another. That's a great question. I'm glad you asked that. It's not the same editor and press I ended up going with, although I really um, have a great fondness for that editor and so appreciate him having sought me out. Um, and he had a, a, you know, he works for a great press and it would have been a great place to publish. Um, but one of the things I felt was really important this time around, because this was my second book, was really doing my research and figuring out where is the 
best home for this book and the best partnership that's really going to get this book in the hands of all the people that I think it can help. Um, And so I ended up talking to a few different presses when I was sort of shopping this proposal around and ended up just making a really strong connection with um, an editor at Princeton University Press who was developing a new series of books that were, it's called Skills for Scholars, that um, just shared this vision that I had about um, helping people develop skills in a really kind of practical sense um, and filling in gaps in like the education that happens in academia or the training um, that is just actually not present um, for the most part or is really informal. Um, So yeah, Princeton just ended up feeling like the perfect home for it. And so far it has been. I love the Skills for Scholars series. It's it really is about helping with the hidden curriculum, yes. and it 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 takes kind of an interesting um, approach because while some of it is for people who are currently students, they've published the Field Guide to Grad School, which we did in an earlier podcast. They also help you after you graduate and you have this sort of panic feeling mm-hmm. that I have my PhD, I don't have my professors anymore. I don't have my mentors. I'm embarrassed to ask questions. Mm -hmm. And they're like, we got you. We've got a book on how to write um, a syllabus. We've got Mm -hmm. a book on college teaching. And so the Skills for Scholars does seem like a really good fit for you because this is um, often what what, um, people are concerned about at the end of grad school or after they've graduated, they're in this kind of now what uh, space where they want to publish but I'll just speak for me. Nobody at grad school told me how to do that. They just said, you should do that. Right, right. Yeah. And I think, I mean, part of the issue, you know, my advisors had published many books and it's not that they wanted me to just be out on my own. um, But I think there's kind of two things going on. I mean, I think on one hand, it can be hard to explain the process because it feels like such a personal experience. Um, and it's like unique every time. So it can feel hard to just say like, well, here's how it works always every time. Um, and then also I would say that most faculty, and this is nothing against them, but most faculty actually don't really understand how publishing works. Like they just like everyone else have kind of fumbled through the process, gotten the books out. They know something happens over at that publisher, but they're not totally sure what, um, So I think that is also partly what accounts for there just not being um, really clear explanations out there for young scholars or emerging scholars. And I think one of the things that you bring up in your book is that this will tell you so much about how to write a book proposal, but it will also have to be strategic for the the press that you ultimately land with. Mm -hmm. And that may come back partly to why our professors can't really guide us maybe as much as we are hoping because it it does come down to really getting a good fit with that press Mm -hmm. and then really tailoring your book proposal to that press. And that is sort of outside the scope of what most of our professors have time to help us with, particularly if we've just graduated and they've got, you know, a full classroom of people to be looking after. Definitely. So can we talk um, a little bit about what an academic book proposal is and what it isn't? Yeah. Um, I love that question of what it isn't. Um, you know, I think what it definitely isn't is um, a document that is meant to prove how smart you are. 
or how hard you worked on your research um, or how much of the literature you know. Um, I think those are ways that we are so trained in academia to think about presenting ourselves, you know, by some of those um, uh, rites of passage, like a qualifying exam or a dissertation defense. Um, you know, a book proposal is not about proving you're qualified or defending your ideas. It's really a tool for um, starting a conversation first with an editor who works at a publisher, then with, um, you know, peer reviewers, expert scholars in your field, then with an editorial board at the press that's going to decide this book needs to exist and our press should publish it. And then eventually with readers, um, the people you want to reach with what you're trying to say. Um, so it's really not about coming from like a defensive place or a place where you need to prove something. It's more about coming from an engaging place um, and a place of connection um, to try to find, you know, what are the things about your research that will interest other people? Um, what are the scholarly conversations that you're contributing to with it? Um, yeah. I mean, I think that that is really the most productive and like the least uh, anxiety provoking way to think about it. Maybe um, that it's really just like an entry point. Um, and then the other thing that I think is so important for people to understand about a book proposal um, that I think is not widely understood is that it is a tool that an editor, an acquisitions editor, that's like your first point of contact, is going to use to then convince other people within their publisher that your book needs to be published. So I... I I know that people think of acquisitions editors as gatekeepers and they are like, we should be honest about that, but they're also advocates for authors. They want to publish scholarly books um, and they want to meet new people in the, in academia and new writers and get those voices connected with the readers who are already coming to their press um, to read scholarship. So understanding that that person is, not your enemy or not like the person who's there to judge you, although yes, they will be making some judgments. Um, they're really the person who's there to partner with you and to advocate for you and your project. Um, and the proposal is like how you get them to do that and then how you give them the tools they need to do their job within the press. Um, and understanding that for me anyway, and I think for a lot of authors also helps to take a lot of the pressure and anxiety out of that process. Because it, when you understand that an editor is interested in you and wants to publish your work, they're not trying to find reasons to shut you out. Um, that can really help the whole thing feel more productive um, and a little less like uh, the kinds of relationships we might be used to in academia that can feel sort of toxic and um, like we're always being shut out. So if we, per we approach the proposal not like a comprehensive exam, yes. but like an invitation. Yes, definitely. You, you talk, chapter one is called uh, Know the Process, Your Readers and the Importance of Fit. So let's jump into what that is. Um, when you're writing your proposal, the important thing is who you want to be your readers, what scholars you think 
might be in conversation with you that your book is joining in and finding the importance of fit in the press. Can you unpack some of that for us? Yeah. So, um, you know, I think readers, the book being a thing that's going to connect with readers, that's like the whole reason this whole thing exists. I mean, yes, there's also like you need the book to get you tenure or maybe to get you uh, an interest on the job market or something. I, I don't think that's as productive to think about. Um, I think thinking about the book as this tool that's going to let you into a conversation with readers, with other scholars, um, is the best way to think about it. And then that kind of dictates everything else about the process. So, um, you know, publishers are, you know, entities that already have been cultivating audiences of readers and different publishers cultivate different audiences. They have different strengths um, and different ways of appealing to audiences and different marketing channels. Um, and so it's really important for you to find the publisher that reaches the people you want to reach, um, a publisher that has the track record of doing that. Um, and that's equally important to them uh, when they're deciding which books to acquire um, because, you know, their resources and time are limited. They can't acquire every book that comes in in the form of a book proposal. So they're going to be looking for the ones that seem like the best investment as far as reaching the people that they already are reaching as a press. Um, so that that question of fit is like so central to what an editor considers when they look at a book proposal. Um, so I th think that starts to answer your question. I'm sorry, I don't know. No, it's great. Um, so let's go into fit a little bit more. Um, a lot of people write in a book that doesn't neatly fit in one uh, discipline. Yeah. And a lot of editors are talking about wanting to diversify their lists and wanting to be more inclusive. Hmm. How do you go about pitching a book that doesn't really fit in an existing category, but you have a feeling that that press might be willing to consider what you're, where you're going with your work? Yeah, that's a great question. And I get that question a lot because I work with a lot of scholars who are interdisciplinarily trained and writing interdisciplinary books. And there's kind of a couple ways to go with this. I mean, there are some publishers that are kind of known for publishing interdisciplinary works that are kind of radically interdisciplinary, where it's not just like, well, it's sociology, but it's also gender studies, but it's like just not even fitting in boxes. Um, so, you know, like, Duke University Press, University of Minnesota Press kind of stick out to me as two publishers that are like that. Um, so, you know, those publishers aren't necessarily going to be so uh, worried about you fitting into a disciplinary box. Um, but then for the other publishers, you know, again, it's about the audiences that they've cultivated. So, you know, if they're very strong in one particular field, your job isn't necessarily to say like, I'm the best, um, most, you know, orthodox member of this field with this book, but it's to really show what your book has to contribute to that field, even if the book itself, like its DNA is interdisciplinary. Um, so that, you know, you're entering into a conversation that's happening in sociology or anthropology or history or whatever it is, um, and saying something that people in those fields will see as indispensable, um, something they have to engage with um, 
and therefore have to read your book um, as opposed to saying, well, that seems like kind of related to what I do, but um, I don't know that it's it's so relevant that I need to spend my you know precious time on this book. So I think it's really about figuring out that contribution you want to make and and what you want to add to the conversations that are already going on and then emphasizing that, making it very clear in the proposal. Um, and I think people, the, the proposal genre sometimes throws people for a loop because um, I think as writers, we sometimes feel like it's inelegant to just like come out and say the thing we want to say, um, that we kind of have to re- lead the reader there or give them, you know, really like beautiful or uh, if not beautiful, then like, um, you know, deep prose or something. And that's just not as important in the proposal genre. You know, the important, this is, remember that this is a tool. Um, so it's really there to, to explain why you are entering this conversation and why you should be entering the conversation and why other people who are already having the conversation will want you to be a new participant in it. So in the proposal, you just need to do all the spoiler alerts. Just yes. go ahead and give everything them. away. Yes. So don't wait for it to be a page turner when they have all 400 pages. Absolutely Lay not. Lay out front, like, what is the compelling uh, things? And don't worry that you haven't left any mystique for later. Yes. And there's two reasons for that. I mean, one is that it, it's like a purely practical thing. Like, editors don't have a lot of time you know, they are laborers just like everyone else in academia. They have fewer hours in the day than they would need to actually like deeply engage with all of the work that's coming across their desk. Um, and so you, like, if you want their attention, you have to give them a reason that why you deserve it quickly. Um, cause they just won't have the time to stick with you. Um, you know, for pages and pages, um, or then, to, or even to say like, well, I'm intrigued by this proposal, but I really want to read the whole manuscript to find out what this author has to say. Like they just w- mostly will not have time for that. Um, and then the other thing is like, if you're not coming right out and saying like, here's the contribution this makes, here's the argument I'm making, um, you know, here's the spoiler of like what this book is going to do. It leaves room for doubt in the mind of an editor that you actually will follow through and do it. Um, you know, because a, a proposal is in a way, it's like a, a promise, but it's not just a promise. Like the actual stuff has to be there. Um, so that the merit of the book can really like be spoken for right in that document. So you tell authors on page 58 of the book proposal book, that they need to be able to distill their project into a one liner. Yes. Uh, it's what I call the elevator pitch when I talk to yeah. many of the authors that I interview. So to give us all the example of what you mean, can you give us the one-liner for the book proposal book? Oh, goodness. I don't have it memorized, <laughs> but um, it I have it as my Twitter banner. So I'm going to bring that up so quickly. Um, and yeah, you know, I say, you know, one of the steps in the book is um, to come up with a one-liner. And it's not like I think you have to have a one-liner or you'll never get a book deal. Um, It's more that the exercise of coming up with a one-liner forces you to kind of distill that spoiler alert um, so that you can very quickly tell an editor and then also a reader, like, why why is this book for you? Um, 
who should read this book? Like that should come across very quickly in your one-liner for your book. So, okay, so I've, I've pulled mine up. So mine is a step-by-step guide to crafting a compelling scholarly book proposal and seeing your book through to successful publication. So, you know, it tells you what's going to be in the book, how the information is presented, and then, you know, it interpolates a certain kind of reader who can now see, well, yes, I I need to know how to do that. So I want to get this book. And it's exactly what the book does. I have a copy of it. It, 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 that is a brilliant summary of exactly what the book does. And you say in the book, the point of the, the one-liner is to do two important things. One is to grab someone's attention and two is to make them want to learn more. Mm-hmm. So when people are trying to think of what their one-liner is, you've given them a formula of, of what they need to have in it for it to be effective. Yeah. It's got to grab your attention and make you want to learn more. So it really is the the spoiler. Just go ahead and tell us. Yeah. And it can also be almost um, more broad than you think it could be. You know, I'm working with some scholars right now in my book proposal accelerator and they're, you know, working on their one-liners and I'm reading them and I'm giving them feedback. And I think people feel this need to like, I've got to get every important piece of information about this book packed into this one sentence so everyone knows what's in here. And that actually can be counterproductive because it can sort of make it feel narrow. Um, And it also might require you to use some like academic jargon that would not be so inviting. Um, So for this one liner, you can actually kind of oversimplify in a way to just like get at like, what is the the kernel of why people are going to want to read this book? Um, You know, it's okay if you can't pack everything into that one line, but it is more about that, just like opening up the interest um, and helping someone see that they are the person being spoken to here. And you you do tell us in the book that to be direct, don't have lots of clauses and commas, and it's not really one sentence. So you encourage people if they need to, to have two sentences, but to be be direct and be clear. Yes. Yeah. And on this one-liner thing, I mean, I think one of the best ways to really to learn anything um, about different genres of academic writing uh, is to go read examples of it. So these one-liners actually get used by publishers. If you look at their catalogs, um, they're usually, you know, right under the title, but before the whole like book description. Um, So I think it's great to like go to publishers' websites, or if you get your hands on a physical catalog at a conference or something, just like look at examples, um, and I think those can be really inspiring. And the inspiring, and the book, of course, has some examples from my clients that I thought, you know, were really successful. The book has wonderful back matter. It has a sample proposal. It has all kinds of uh, examples, so we can see how your advice, when someone actually applies it, what, what kind of document do they create, and what does it look like? It's really helpful. I was thinking when you were talking about the one-liners, um, when you read them in the um, book catalogs, you see what the successful ones were. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the interesting ways to look at one-liners is when they have PitMad on Twitter and people mm. have to put their one-liners out there and see if an editor or agent is interested. And you can see what gets a lot of attention and mm-hmm. what doesn't. And you can kind of get a feel for the ones that just landed with a thud. Mm-hmm. So that might be a, a place for people to start getting their instincts on what draws us in. And we may not know why something lands with a thud, but we kind of know when it does. Right. And, and when you see those uh, pitch parties going on on Twitter, you can kind of see those one-liners. Um, you also tell us that it's really important to be able to have the central argument mm-hmm. um, 
boiled down sort of into one paragraph that that in a dense book we'll be making arguments and sub arguments and they'll weave together but we have to have one central argument and if we don't we, we really don't have enough foundation for both for the book really and but also for the editor to want to sign it can you talk mm-hmm. about that part of the proposal because i think that's probably the part that gives us all the most most yes. of the stomach ache <laughs> yes and it's absolutely the hardest part of the whole thing. And I'm not even convinced that my first book had a clear argument. Um, I think it might've been more successful had it had one. Um, you know, I think th- you know, the reason you need an argument um, in a scholarly work is, is it goes back to that idea of the conversation and the contribution to the conversation. Like you need to have something to say about the thing that you're writing about to kind of earn your spot in the conversation. Um, a lot of people could tell you what the topic of their book is, um, but that doesn't necessarily tell anyone why people need to read this particular book about that topic. Um, and I almost think of it as like, if you're just kind of dancing around your topic in your book, that's almost like making small talk. Um, but if you've got an argument um, you know, situated in that topic, that's where you're having like a really substantive conversation that pushes people's knowledge forward um, beyond just like trivia or, you know, just the surface understanding of this topic. Um, and that's what publishers are really interested in is scholarly publishers is pushing those scholarly conversations forward. Um, and it's also important for a couple other reasons uh, one of which is you're going to be going through peer review if you're publishing at a university press or another kind of scholarly publisher. And the reviewer has to have kind of something to sink their teeth into to evaluate for its contribution. And description of a an object or a site or a text, you know, whatever it is that you're writing about, description, it's hard to evaluate. Um, we could evaluate it aesthetically, um, but it, it's not showing us like what you're really bringing to the table. Um, so, so if you want to get through peer review, I think the argument is really important there. Um, and then an argument also makes your work portable beyond the specific objects that you're looking at. Um, and the reason why that's important is that, you know, there are some objects of study that are just like perennially interesting to a lot of people and they'll buy any book that comes out about that topic. Um, but for most of us, you know, I think we chose kind of specific research sites that were very interesting to us, but maybe other people in the world might need to be convinced why this thing is important. Um, and really our job is not necessarily to convince them that it's important, but to give them something that they can take away from our research and use in their own research. You know, that's why scholars read books is they're all producing their own scholarship. Um, so it's not just that they want to appreciate what their peers are doing, but they want to find something useful in it. And that's where I think arguments are also um, kind of where the book becomes useful. That's really helpful that you unpacked all that for us. Thank you. Now we know the difference between the one liner that we need to have memorized uh, so that we can get uh, someone's attention and have them wanting to do more 
we understand what a topic is and we understand how that's different from the argument that we're going to make. And we have to have all three of those clear. Um, If not now, by the time we're done with the proposal and then go back and make sure (laughs) that we re-clarify it. Yeah. And those things, things can evolve over time. Um, for sure. And sometimes you just need to write almost the whole manuscript before you can really figure out what that nugget of an argument is. Um, and that's okay. That's how, you know, some people work. Um, but then it is important that the proposal have that in there because that is what is going to hook an editor. And the proposal lets them know know how much of the book you've already got written. If you have one Mm -hmm. sample chapter, if you feel like you have an entire draft, so I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. How did your book change from the proposal to what I'm holding in my hands now? That's a great question. Um, you know, I was really lucky to have um, constructive peer reviewers um, who were, uh, you know, veterans of the scholarly publishing field. Um, so while that was a little bit scary to me um, to have these like people I considered much more expert than me. Um, evaluating this work. It also um, gave me the opportunity to kind of learn from their wisdom. And so, like, for example, one of the things that changed was um, in my proposal, I had proposed to talk about the comps, which are the competing titles or the comparable works, um, the other books that your book is in conversation with. That's a part of every book proposal. I had proposed to talk about that kind of late in the game, um, like chapter eight or something, um, because, you know, it doesn't necessarily feel to an author like the most central thing about your book is these other books that have already been written. Um, But what one of the peer reviewers told me is that that might be one of the first things an editor looks at is that list of books, because it gives them these points of reference to kind of triangulate where your book fits in the market, who you see yourself as in conversation with, how you're envisioning your book, like what kind of book you think you're writing. Um, And so, you know, the advice from the peer reviewer, which I ended up taking, was to move that chapter about the comps to be much earlier in the book. It's now, I think, chapter three, maybe. Um, Yeah, it's chapter three. So it's like almost one of the first things you're thinking about. And which also makes a lot of sense because if you're looking for a press to publish with and trying to figure out where's the right fit, you're looking at the other books they've already published. So you're already kind of thinking about yourself in relation to other books that are already on the market. So um, doing that kind of early on in the process of writing the proposal can be really constructive. You mentioned that your first book was um, your dissertation. Yes. And you talk in the book proposal book about you can publish your dissertation, but they're not just going to, you know, take the dissertation and publish it. Yes. There's going to have to be a process from where it was as a dissertation to what it will become as a book. Having gone through that yourself and having written about um, trying to get your uh, dissertation published in the book proposal book, what are your key takeaways if someone's trying to pitch their dissertation as a book? Yeah, I mean, th- I could probably talk for hours about just this topic. Um, and it's always very, um, it feels like a very urgent topic to, to authors. Because um, everyone has heard this advice, oh, you can't publish your dissertation as a book. But it's really hard to get a practical sense of what that means. Like, what do you actually have to do to that dissertation to make it, like, book worthy? Um, and so, you know, I would say, 
the things that I emphasize in the book proposal book for any writer um, also hold true for someone who's thinking about a dissertation, which is that you have to get really clear on who your audience is. Um, it's not going to be your committee, your dissertation committee, or people who are at that expert, expert level and specializing in your exact you know, research methods and approach, um, because there just probably aren't enough of those people out in the world to justify publishing a book for them. Um, so you have to broaden out. You have to think about who could this work be speaking to and what, how do I need to frame it so that they understand that it's speaking to them? So you have to kind of broaden out from your research question, like your very narrow site and the questions you asked and the data you gathered and really just pull way back and think about, well, why does this matter in the real world? Why does this matter to lots and lots of people out there beyond the 40 people I interviewed in my dissertation or whatever it is? Um, and if you understand that, that's what you foreground in the proposal. Um, because that is what is going to appeal to an editor. You know, again, they're not so interested in the intricacies of your methods and how you gathered your data. Um, they're more interested in like what it has to say to a larger audience of readers. And one of the ways you can find your your publisher, hopefully, is um, at conferences. You talk about um, there's kind of two ways conferences can help you. One is if you are very strategic in how you name your presentation so mm -hmm. that it can be found with keyword searches for editors who are looking to build lists or start a new list. Um, they're going to be searching around to see what scholars might begin to be a good fit for them. Mm -hmm. And they'll be using keywords to find you. Um, the other is trying to approach um, editors directly at academic conferences. And you recommend that for people who write what you call quirky books, which I, I love that you put that in there because my book doesn't really fit any one category. Um, and so can you talk to us about um, the importance of uh, the keywording and also for the many, many of us who are quirky, how we yeah. go about uh, entering into the conversation so that um, we we find a way uh, to work with a publisher? Yeah. So I'm so glad you brought up that the keyword idea and like helping yourself get found. Um you know, because I personally always felt such like crushing anxiety about the thought of approaching an editor and saying, can you spend some of your valuable time talking to me, somebody who might not even know what I'm doing? Um, like that just was like a non-starter for me. And I think for a lot of people, um, but if an editor had already taken interest in my work, you know, much as had happened for the book proposal book in its early stages, and then is coming to me to say, hey, it seems like you have some interesting ideas. I'd love to talk to you about them. That feels like a much lower pressure situation to me anyway. Um, so you can take those steps to make those situations more likely to happen, um, like as, as you pulled out, um, using smart keywords in your journal articles, in your conference presentations, on your website, um, on your faculty page, if you have one, um, in your Twitter bio, just like anywhere that a, an editor might encounter you and think of you as a potential author, um, making sure it's clear like what you would be having to say as an author um, um, so that they can find you. 
And then as far as, um, you know, the quirky books that maybe aren't so easily summed up with kind of packaged keywords, um, those conversations with editors can be really useful if you can kind of push past um, like the interpersonal anxiety about them, because it's your chance to like get to know somebody on a human level and kind of show that you're an interesting thinker and that you are interested in the same things they are, but maybe you see them in a different way or you see them in a new way. Um, and and just gauge whether this is a person who gets it. Um, and there are authors out there, I mean, editors out there who do like to kind of start really early with an author when, when they just have an idea and kind of work with them to develop it. Um, and I think that, you know, is maybe the way to go for somebody who is like having trouble articulating, well, like, what is the contribute this, the disciplinary contribution here? Or like, who is my audience? Those are questions you can be talking with an editor about to see what their perspective is on it. Um, so yeah. And so those conversations, you know, we don't right now, we're not having in-person conferences for the most part. Um, but a lot of editors are making themselves available over zoom, um, or you can connect with them over email or social media um, to just kind of like have conversations about how things work at their publisher and about your own project. And just, um, I really recommend approaching it as a conversation, not as like round two of your dissertation defense, where you're kind of standing up there and saying like, I've got this great project. You're going to love it. Let me tell you about it. And more of um, like just getting to know this person and like sharing some of your ideas, hearing some of their ideas and seeing if you like that back and forth with them um, and if they seem to get it. Can we talk a little bit about rejection? Yeah. You can write the whole book proposal and it can be everything it's supposed to be and you send it out and it's a no. Yeah. 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 That that can happen. Um, that's where, you know, I think getting that fit right is important. Um, at the beginning, you can um, kind of save yourself a lot of time and a lot of no's by really targeting um, at, you know, on the front end. Um, I'm not sure what else to say about rejection. How final is rejection? What do you do next? Yeah. Okay. So that's a good question. So you know, if you get that no from an editor at a press, that's like kind of the end of the road at that press usually. So that is a reason to like try, like put some effort into the proposal and and feel confident that you've like given it your best shot. Because um, once they say no, then they're really, you can't go to like a different editor at the same press and try to get them to say yes. Like that is one of those things about publishing that is like just one of those unwritten rules. And it's kind of frowned upon if you're seen to be sort of gaming the different editors, um, even if that's not your intention at all. Um, but what I'll say is that there are a lot of publishers out there. So, you know, there's always somebody else. Um, so you, you know, you can kind of look at it as kind of a revise and resubmit process if that helps as a way to think about it. Um, just because one publisher passes doesn't mean they all will. Um, and most often, you know, if you get a rejection that is like they look at the proposal and then very quickly tell you no or don't really move forward, they're just like, this is not a fit for us. It's really about fit. It's not necessarily about the quality of your project or your proposal. 
Um, you know, if you're getting that over and over from places that you thought would have been a good fit, then that's maybe time to like reevaluate and get a little bit of help on it, which, you know, I think a lot of that help is in the book proposal book. Like I think if you follow the advice there, it'll save you from some of those um, rejections. Um, but then sometimes, you know, it just, it just doesn't work out. Um, you know, the peer reviewers like just aren't positive enough about it or the editor doesn't feel confident enough in moving forward with it for whatever reason. And then, you know, that's when you can think of it as a kind of revise and resubmit. Okay, what would I need to change about this project to make it seem more marketable, like to have more audience appeal or to make the argument stronger or, you know, to make the evidence more aligned with what the expert reviewers in my field will be expecting. Um and then you try again with other presses. Um, and, so, you know, there are, I'm sure, instances where it just doesn't work out for a book. Um, and, you know, if you've been doing the proposal and shopping it around and that's when you get the rejection, that's better than if you've spent years and years writing the book um, only to find that out. Um, I actually had a client who, you know, he had gotten a revise and resubmit from a publisher on his proposal and sample chapters. Uh, like they had said, this is not for us right now. The peer reviews aren't strong enough. If you want to keep working on it and bring it back, we're open to seeing it again. That sometimes happens. So he came to me to kind of help him with that. And I read the dissertation um, that it was based on. And I, I also was kind of like, oh, I don't really know if this holds together as a book you know, I think there's kind of two paths you could take. You could really radically revise this to make it into essentially a new project. Or you could like mine it for parts and publish some of these pieces as um, journal articles. You know, I think they would work fine in that format. Um, and I was actually very nervous to tell this client that because I, you know, I felt like, oh, he's going to feel like all this time was wasted or something. Um, but it kind of had a happy ending because he was like, oh, all those things you said I should turn into articles, I've already turned them into articles. They got published. I've got great pubs on my CV. This actually helps me move on. Now I can write this other book that I really want to write um, and don't have to like be tied to this dissertation for the next however many years. So that is also a path that is like legitimate to take. Sometimes a book is not meant to be or it has to sit on the shelf for a while until you have a breakthrough and figure out how you can make it connect with editors and readers. Um, and that, that's a perfectly legitimate path too, I think. And it is one of the things you tell us about in the book, that it's going to be a process. And once you write the proposal, do not send it to every academic press <laughs> out there and every commercial academic publisher and every independent publisher. Pick like your top handful mm -hmm. and see what they come back with. And, and keep going on through the process so that you're able to evolve and make the most out of this project what it can be. It may be a series of articles. It may be a book. Mm -hmm. But if you blitz it out there to everybody and you get all the no's back, those mm -hmm. you shut all those doors before you've had a chance to really learn how the process works with your proposal and get the proposal ultimately to where it needs to be. Yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, I think that's important that you don't want to send it everywhere at once. I think, you know, two to three places is a good manageable starting point. Um, and I, I know the temptation might be, well, I don't know if it's good enough yet. Let me send it to like my middle two or three choices. But I don't think that's a great idea um, because what if they love it? And then you're like, oh, but wait, I wanted to try for this other press that was really my dream press. So I say 
do what you need to do to feel really good about the proposal, like to know that you've put in the work. Um, and then aim high, aim for those top two or three dream presses to see if they pick up on it. Um, you know, in my experience working with authors, you know, the people who choose to work with me are a self-selecting bunch. It's people who like maybe want a little bit more reinforcement. Um, you know, they're not ready to go out on their own yet. Um, and those people will often say like, oh, well, I would love to publish with this press, but I just don't think I am in their league. Um, and I've never once looked at what this person has written and said, oh, no, you're not in their league. Um, I think it's much more common for people to undersell themselves um, and to feel like there's some like, uh, you know, magical formula that everyone else who has published with this great publisher has figured out. Um, but it's not the case. Um, everyone's kind of starting from the same point. Um, and, and just, you know, if you can kind of get that understanding of how it works so that you feel like you're putting your best foot forward, um, I think you have as much chances of anybody as publishing with what you might think of as a really, um, you know, competitive or prestigious press. And I think some of what, at least from my point of view, makes me think some of those presses are out of my league is I go to their website and I see what they say that they want in their proposal. And then I just have sort of a mild version of a panic attack. Uh Um, And that I think is where we get the feeling that I'm not in their league because I don't know how to do what they just asked for. Of course I should do that. And that's how all these people got published with them because they know how to do that. Um, And that's really an important place where your book comes in. Mm -hmm. No, we don't all just know how to do that. That's what they want. Now your book in about 200 pages takes us through exactly mm-hmm. how to how to do that so that yes you you quite possibly are in their league if you're attracted to that press they're they're quite probably where you should be sending it mm-hmm. and here's how you create what they need to know that yes yeah there's so much like mystification around like what goes in a book proposal and what those pieces mean and they're really not that complicated which is why I was able to write a book that's really, it's like a how-to guide. It's just like nuts and bolts. Here's the steps you follow. Um, When they say competing titles, this is exactly what they mean. Here's how you present those titles. Here's the things you should say about them. Um, And you'll have checked the boxes and be taken seriously as, you know, a a top author. And you really do. You take us through uh, an explanation chapter by chapter of all the key components And then at the end in the back matter, you give us actual examples. They're not um, hypotheticals that Mm -hmm. you wrote. You got permission from clients who were successful to go ahead and show us exactly what they sent. And then you annotate it in the margin. Mm -hmm. You give us, really, you highlight for us why this paragraph was so effective, why putting this sentence here in this paragraph was so important to front load that information. Um, You explain the difference between the proposal itself and the CV and the cover letter. Mm-hmm. Um, you give us checklists of, mm-hmm. did you cover all these things? Um, and so it really takes us through a, a deep understanding of what all the pieces are of a book proposal. And then it takes us through in the back matter, just chunk by chunk. Here's how to break it down into manageable bites. And then when you think you're done, here's your checklist mm-hmm. to, to make sure that you went through it. But I love that your final sentence of your conclusion is, you don't have to be perfect and neither does your proposal or your book. You just have to have a message to share 
and readers you hope to share it with. You talk in the uh, final chapter about how we need encouragement and how you hope to provide some of that. In the few minutes we have left, can you talk about sort of the role of encouragement and why we need that to keep going? Yeah. And, you know, this the, the conclusion is very was very personal to me because um, it was kind of just like, oh, here's all the things that tripped me up and made me feel awful when I was trying to write this book. And here's some wisdom I hope will help you get through those feelings, too, if you have it, have them. Um, and actually, one of the peer reviewers was like, well, not everyone has these hangups. I don't know if you should focus on them so much. Um, so I, I did try to kind of reframe it to be a little more universal. But um, uh, but yeah, I mean, I do think, especially for the type of people who want, who really want to just like do a good job, but don't feel like they have been given the tools to do it. Um, there is a really important role for like external encouragement and feedback. And that's, I think, just a thing people are really missing in academia and hungry for and it's partly structural. It's, you know, nobody has time to give other people encouragement because everyone's just like on their own hamster wheel. Um, so, you know, one of the, the takeaways that I hope authors will um, get from this or, or see is that actually your editor and like people you work with in publishing can be a source of that feedback and encouragement for you. Um, you know, if they are taking the time to read your materials and then do any kind of follow-up with you, like talk about them, um, send them out for peer review. Um, you know, maybe they're not line editing your work, but they're like engaging with you and spending time and then taking their own resources and time to then present your materials to an editorial board to try to get this book approved for publication. Like that's an investment that they wouldn't make if they didn't like your project and feel it had merit. So, um, you know, not every editor is like, has a cheerleading personality, um, and will just like compliment you all day long. But I hope authors will realize if they are getting any kind of attention like that from an editor, that, it, you know, that speaks volumes about the promise of their project and the value it holds for readers, because this editor wouldn't be taking the time to do it if they didn't know that readers would find value in it. So it's important to know your editor's actions are their validation. Yes. And then also to have someone in your private life who verbalizes that. Yes. Yeah. And for you, that is, is that Brad? Yes. Yeah. I noticed that you, um, that you dedicated your book to him and, um, and I think it's important to uh, always encourage people to, to, build a network, whether it's small or large, to have a network and to acknowledge the, the people in their network. And I love that you uh, had promised him in your previous, uh, after your previous book, yes. that you would thank him in the next one. And so you did right there in bold in like the third page. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think I, maybe this is like beyond the scope of the book, but I think uh, one thing I've learned is that it's so important to have people in your life who who value you aside from what you produce as an academic um, because you are not your worth as a person is like not actually dependent on your research output or what you can publish or even the book that you can put out. Um, so, you know, don't let that go away 
because you got to get this book done or something. Um, you know, I always say like the book isn't going to keep you warm. The book is not going to love you back. Um, you know, I talk to authors who like feel really let down after they publish a book because they're like, well, what was this for? Like, uh, okay, I, I spent all this, these years and wrote this book and it went out there and a few people read it. And now what? Um, so I think, you know, it's important to think about books as tools that like help you connect with other people. And those can be people inside academia um, or outside. Um, and if you really like are always thinking about like, what will this book allow me to do and the people it will allow me to connect with instead of getting so caught up in this object of the book itself, um, I think that will make the whole thing feel a bit more sustainable and more fulfilling at the end of it. And my final question is, what do you hope this episode sparks for listeners? Oh, I really hope people feel more confident that they can write a book proposal um, that and that they can do what needs to be done because it's not some magical thing um, that only the smartest people or the most well-connected people can do. Um, you know, it is a formulaic kind of document. The book proposal book lays out the formula, tells you how to fill it in. Um, of course, you have to bring your own, um, you know, intellect to the process and your research. Um, but um, I hope to just like take that mystery and the anxiety that comes from the mystery and the uncertainty away for people. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Dr. Laura Portwood-Stacer, and telling us about book proposals and about the book proposal book, A Guide for Scholarly Authors. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler. You've been listening to New Books Network. Please join us again.